what we're going to cover today is uh, it's really pretty incredible because you know we talk about the love of God we talk about the peace of God and we read the scriptures we read what Jesus does and what Jesus says and all and okay we get it but when we look at the prophets Isaiah and Hosea this morning and we see how God deals with Israel and Judah um, we see the love of God in a way that's just absolutely mind-blowing. It's, it's just crazy that God would love people this much. And we know that, that, you know, Jesus said, for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But in what we're going to look at today, God is really pursuing Israel and pouring out his love upon Israel when they don't want any of it. Okay, and that's the crazy thing. It's not, remember how Paul says, when we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for the ungodly? He didn't wait for us to clean up. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to be perfect. He took care of what needed to be done when we didn't want anything to do with him. And that's what we see in Hosea. And in Isaiah, we see how God is so faithful in bringing Jesus to us. And we're going to look at the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ in the passages that we're going to look at this morning. And what I think is so cool is when you look at the way God deals with his people in um, what we're looking at right now before God sends Israel into captivity, he sends the prophets so that he will give his people not only a heads up and an opportunity to repent, but he also gives them the heads up that, hey, this is the end game. This is where we're going to end up, and it's going to be a good thing. We see the same thing in the book of Revelation where the church is concerned and Israel, because Israel is getting ready to go into the diaspora. Okay, that's when Rome just totally sacked Jerusalem and tore down Judah and or Judea and cast everybody all over the Roman Empire and the church was scattered all over the place and so with all of this scattering and everything God has John give the revelation and so the Jewish people and the church see the end game. Yeah, it's going to get really bad. Yeah, there's going to be the Antichrist. Yeah, it's going to be ugly. But here's the way it ends up, and they all live happily ever after. And that's what we're going to see this morning, okay? So you're ready to dive in and see how God deals with this? All right. Father, the fact that you are faithful when we are unfaithful, you are loving when we are unloving, when you are loving, when we are unloving, you are gracious when we are ungracious, you are patient when we are rebellious, you are steadfast when we are fickle. There is such security in your love and your faithfulness and your power and your goodness. And God, I pray for us here this morning that as we look at you at work in the people of Israel and Judah, 
that we would have our minds absolutely blown by your love and your commitment to us. And I think, God, so often we, f- we forget that you're committed to us before we ever made a commitment to you. And in our human relationships, we're so apt to brush people aside when they don't match up to our expectations or they fail us or whatever, but you don't do that. And so may we be encouraged and fall more in love with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to give you a quick backdrop of what's transpiring when when Hosea and Isaiah give their prophecies. And remember, Amos is in the game here too. So there's a lot of stuff going on, all right? But this is what's happening now. Through Amos and Isaiah, God tells Israel that the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to take out Israel. And remember, Israel had made a a covenant with Syria and they went in to attack attack Judah. And God says, don't worry, I've got it covered. They did attack and Israel took 200,000 captives out of Judah. And God sent a prophet and said, hey, Israel, don't do this. This is your brother and sister. This is family. Don't do this. And the elders of Israel actually said, you know what? God's right. We're wrong. We've already screwed up enough. We've caused enough problems, and we're already on God's bad list. Why do they know that? Because of Amos and because of Obadiah prophesying what God was going to do. Like, we don't need to add more to what's coming against us. And so they repented and they sent everybody in Judah back home. They fed them, clothed them, and it's like, okay, go. And so God brought those, those captives back. And then after that happened, the Assyrians came in like Amos said would happen and just totally obliterated Israel, okay, crushed them, and took the nobility and the leaders of Israel into captivity And then they sent captives from other nations into Israel. And this is where we get the people of the Samaritans. Remember the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well? Okay, and she's talking about worshiping God and where they worship God in in Israel and the Jews say you worship in Jerusalem. Well, this is how it all got started because the Assyrians would take people out of a nation, put other people in a nation. They'd all assimilate, intermarry and everything. And you would destroy the national identity because if you could destroy a national identity, you could control the nation, okay? So they knew what they were doing, but God was going to spare a remnant. So we'll see this a little bit later. But what happens is after that's all done, Hezekiah becomes king in Judah, Hezekiah loves the Lord. And in the first month of his first year, Hezekiah's like, gang, we got to get back with the Lord. And remember, Isaiah's been prophesying, Amos is prophesying, Obadiah's prophesying, Jonah has prophesied. All right, so all this information's coming in from God saying, this is what I'm going to do. Guys, you need to repent. And so Hezekiah comes on board and he's like, we're repenting. And first month of the first year of his reign, they go in and they just totally 
uh, repent and he has the priests restore the temple and fix it up and get everything ready. And then they're like, wait a minute, we can't, we can't do the Passover because we're unclean and the temple's unclean. And so if you remember from our previous studies in the law, in the book of, I think, Deuteronomy, you have some people who are unclean and they went to Moses and they're like, we're unclean. We can't do the Passover in the first month. What are we going to do? And so Moses went to the Lord and the Lord said, okay, let him do it four weeks later. Okay, the second month. All right. And we're good. So Hezekiah says, well, God made this provision for the second month. So let's do the Passover in the second month. And so everybody came out. And what's really cool is Hezekiah didn't just care about the people of Judah. He cared about all of Israel. So he sent word up into Israel. And by now you've got all these other nations that have come in to the land and they're living there. And he says, hey, everybody come on down to Jerusalem. We're going to have the Passover. We're worshiping God. We're going to get plugged in with him again. And we are going to get our lives back in order with him and enjoy his blessings and his presence. And the people were scoffed. The messengers were scoffed. And they're like, yeah, take a hike. But there were a few out of the far north. And they're like, okay, we're coming down. So they came down and they celebrated the Passover, but they were impure. And they're like, well, wait a minute, it's the second month, so we can't do it in the second month. Now we can't do the Passover and worship the Lord. And so Hezekiah goes, God, we've got a problem here. You said do the Passover the first month. We couldn't, so we're doing it the second month, but then these people can't, and there's no other provision. Would it be okay if they just didn't do all the ceremonial stuff, the religious stuff, because their hearts are right, and God said, Hezekiah, you go for it. Anybody, if they're not ceremonially clean, it doesn't matter. The heart's right. Come on in. Let's all just worship and reconnect. And it was a worship service of the Passover that was so incredible, they extended it another seven days. Can you imagine going to church or like going to, not, not church, but let's say like the women are at the women's camp right now. Imagine over the course of three days that God was moving so much and things were happening and people were being blessed and lives changed to where they go, you know what? Let's just stay here for another three days. Okay, that's how God was moving. And it was a beautiful thing. So this is what's happening. And then Hosea comes in and he's telling Israel what's going to transpire. And remember, they've scoffed the messengers of Hezekiah and said, we don't need God. And so God is sending the message now to Israel about what he's going to do. So open up your Bibles to the book of Hosea. And even though it comes after Isaiah in the scriptures, it actually happens a little bit before. Um, and he's a contemporary of Isaiah, but some of the stuff happens before. And you may be familiar with this, but the first point of ministry that God has Hosea do is marry a prostitute. How would you like that for your introduction to your new job? You know, something that crazy. 
Hosea did it. But the whole purpose of this was so that God could show a picture to Israel. This is the way our relationship is right now. And we need to get this fixed. And this is my heart toward you and your heart toward me. So in chapter 1, Hosea is prophesying to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And it says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That's Jeroboam II, okay? We talked about him last week. Verse 2, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is the picture that God's painting. A faithful husband and a very, very unfaithful wife. And they have their first child, verse 4, his name is Jezreel, which means scattered, okay? And God is saying, the people of Israel, the children of this prostitute wife of mine is going to be scattered all over the place. The Assyrians coming in and, and taking uh, them back to Assyria. Verse 6, we have a third child, a little girl named no mercy. How would you like that for a name? No mercy. And that's her name because God's not going to give the children of Israel any mercy because of the rebellion. And then in verse 8, a little boy named not my people. Because of the rebellion and all, they are not God's people. Okay. So you've got these three kids that are showing what's going on between God and his people. No mercy. You're not my people because you're not following me and you're rebelling against me. And I'm going to scatter you all over the place. And then chapter two is the plea for repentance, but they don't repent. Chapter two says, say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother. And that, that may sound contradictory to what he just said, but he's saying, look, I've given you mercy. I've called you my people, but we're not getting anywhere here. You're not repenting. Please, with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. She's not acting like my wife. And I am not her husband. She's not treating me as a husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and make her as the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. That is heavy. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, if somebody, if somebody were to convey your relationship with them to that, I mean, that's got to shake you up, but it didn't. 
they still continued to rebel. And so God goes on throughout chapter two and says, look, this is what I'm going to do to you. I have been faithful to you. I have given you mercy. You have rebelled. You have rejected me. And I am going to strip you down and you are going to have nothing. I'm scattering you to the Assyrians and it's not going to be pleasant. But then God starts to show that heart of love. That's the heart of justice. But then the heart of love that he has for them. Going down to verse 14, he's going to put her through the ringer. But look at what it says. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying, okay, I'm going to bring you into the valley of Achor, okay? That's the valley of trouble. I am going to bring you to a place where it is going to be absolutely miserable for you. But there's a reason for that. In the midst of that trouble, I'm going to be wooing you back to myself. I'm going to be trying to bring you home. And it says that the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, will become a door of hope. Gang, when the Lord disciplines us and we get into trouble, okay, and he's kind of putting the pressure on us and disciplining us, Remember, the scriptures tell us that whom God loves, he reproves, right? A good parent will correct their children so their lives can be the best possible if they choose to accept the correction. And so his heart is to bring them back around. And that valley of trouble is actually going to be a door of hope. That's going to be the the doorway into the blessings and the goodness of God again. And sometimes God has to do that with us, where we just get broken and we get humbled and we get desperate. And we finally go, you know what, Lord, I guess I really do need you. And, you know, maybe you've been in that position where you think you've got it all handled. You think you've got it under control. And God, I don't need you. I think this is the best thing. And God's saying, no, it's not. And then we suffer the consequences. And in that brokenness, we go, can I come home? Like the prodigal, remember? Can I come home, daddy? Yeah, come on. This valley of trouble is the doorway to hope. And I love the way that God does that. He is not mean. He does not do things to us because he's vindictive or harsh. His heart is to turn us back to himself. And that's what we go on to see here. In verse 22, or verse 19, he says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I'm going to wed you again. I'm going to engage myself to you again forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, his faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth 
and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Wait, isn't that the scattered kid? You know, that's his name? Well, see, the word scattered has two meanings, okay? The first time he uses it, Israel's going to be scattered all over the place and broken. The second time he uses it, I'm going to scatter in the sense of sowing Israel, and they're going to be planted by me, and they're going to grow and be fruitful. Very different, okay? And then in verse uh, and then verse 23, and I will sow her for myself in the land. I'm going to bring them back and I will have mercy on the little girl, no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That's God's heart. Restoration. We see the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, right? Rebellion and disobedience. We see the restoration in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus commits to go to the cross to die for our sins so we can have that relationship restored. God is a God of relationship and love and restoration. And if you have wandered from the Lord, if you've disobeyed the Lord, you know what, and you don't feel like you can come home, Remember the prodigal. He wants you to come home. And I know for me, I have screwed up in my life and it's like, God doesn't want to hear from me. He doesn't want me to pray. He doesn't want to use me. He doesn't want me at all. I failed him. And he says, come home. I love you. We'll get it taken care of. And that's what he's telling these people. And get this, look at this. Chapter three. And the Lord said to me, Go again, now get this, remember he said, marry a woman of whoredom, okay? Marry a prostitute. Now look what he says, go again, love, not marry, he's already married. I want you to love a woman who is loved by another man. This is still Gomer, and she is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, those were offered to the gods, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lesseth of barley. God tells Hosea, I love my people. I want you to go and love Gomer. Gomer is living with another guy now, okay? They're married. She's left her husband and she's living with somebody else. That's what Israel did. Her husband was God, but in her adulterous, idolatrous heart, she goes and moves in with Baal and Asherah and Molech and all these other gods. And so here's, can, can you imagine Hosea going, all right, I'm going to go buy my wife back? How humbling. If it were me, I would have gone, you know what, buddy, give me my wife back. She's mine, not yours, and if you don't know it now, I'm going to really put the hammer to you. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to beat you up. But God didn't do that. He wants to bring her back. And Jesus, he ransomed us. He bought us when we were rebellious and hateful to him. How much more, I mean, if God loved you at that point, there is nothing you can do to change that love. I mean, look at this, what we see here. If you wonder if God loves you and cares about you, 
remember this thing with Gomer and with Israel. He loves you. He wants you. And it just blows my mind. You know, there's such security. And he shifts now and he condemns the priests because the bulk of the responsibility of the adultery is on the priests. Chapter 4, verse 4. Let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. In the world that we live in today, in the church today, many people are suffering because they don't know the Lord and they don't know the word of God. Okay? They don't know this and they don't know him. You have the progressive church movement where it's really God and Jesus created in our own image. Well, I don't think God would be like this. Well, I don't God, think God would do that. Well, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what God says about himself and what Jesus says about himself and the Father. And when we don't know the heart of God, I mean, think of how many people carry burdens on their shoulders in the church today thinking that God is just ready to beat them over the head if they step out of line or that they have to jump through hoops to earn God's favor again. If they knew the heart of God, like we see here in chapter three, that God loves me, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Can you imagine the burdens that would be alleviated that are imposed by themselves or by pastors and teachers that should not be there people suffer when the pastors and the teachers do not teach the word of god and do not teach jesus and he's coming down on these guys for this in psalm 138 verse 2 you don't have to turn there but it says your word O god is exalted above your very name. God holds the word that he has spoken to humanity above his own name. That's how important this is. Remember when everybody was abandoning Jesus because he was saying some tough stuff and he goes to the disciples, to the 12, and says, hey, are you guys going to bail on me too? And Peter says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the word of life. Just, just you. There's no place else to go. And that's what God's driving home here. This is where it's at, and he's where it's at. And if people understood that and understood the word better, their lives would be so much better. And on the heels of this, I want you to turn over to chapter 6 and look at Hosea's response. Because remember, he says, my people, God says, my people don't know. 
they're dying. They're going into captivity because they don't know me. They don't know my word because these priests are not teaching them. Chapter 6, verse 1, this is Hosea's plea. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. Why? Because he hates us and he's mean? No. That he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. That means heal us. Now listen to this. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Now that's a Hebrewism of saying in a short time, he's going to bring us back. He's going to raise us up from what, what uh, is coming, coming down the pike. But this is also insight into Jesus. In two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will rise, raise us up. Colossians 2.12, Paul mentions this. If we are buried with Christ, we are raised together with him in new life. And so, I mean, it's just so cool that in all of this, God is pointing to the future, saying, look, I care about you, and I want you, and I love you. And so I'm going to make a way for this to happen, and it's my son Jesus. So we're seeing this here. We're going to see it more in Isaiah. Verse 3, let us know, because they didn't know, let us know, let us press on. That means to eagerly strive to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn, and he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. It's been dry right now, right? I was hoping we were going to get more rain than we've gotten. It's dry. It's dry in Canada, and we got a lot of smoke because it's dry in Canada. The spring rains. And what... Hosea is saying is, let's eagerly seek the Lord, okay? Let's pursue him. And when he comes, oh, it's going to be like that refreshing, life-giving, soothing rain that comes. It's going to be a blessing to us. How do you seek God? And this is something I've been asking the Lord about. It's like, I want more than what I've got with you. You know, and if, if you've been in a relationship with anybody, be it a friendship or a dating relationship or marriage, you can come to a place where your, your relationship just kind of hits a plateau. You know, you're just kind of doing what you do and you still love the person. You know, I still love my wife. I still love my husband. But just the fire is just kind of died down and you're busy just doing the day-to-day -day stuff and all of that. And you actually have to stoke the flames again. You know, you got to stoke the flames of the passion. You got to start dating again. You got to go out and do stuff to get that happening again because we can get so stuck in a rut. And we can do the same thing with the Lord where it's like, I go to church, I read my Bible, I go to church, I read my Bible, and it's just okay. It's, we've got this relationship. Yeah, I love God. And I found myself in that place quite a while ago where it's like, I love you, Lord, but I'm not excited about you. I'm not passionate about you. And, you know, as we, we love somebody and time goes by, the love gets deeper and we're not 
riding on passion so much as we are that deep intimacy and that communication and that deep relationship. And it's like, okay, God, how, how can we seek you? How can we pursue you? And it made me think back to when Jennifer, my wife, and I were first courting. And it's like, wow, okay, so what, how did I pursue knowing her? Well, I tried to be where she was, okay? And I tried to talk to her. I would ask her out. And, you know, we, I would be really trying to connect with her. And she was trying to connect with me. You know, it was really cool. I was on staff at the church that we were going to, and one of the things I did was the sound, okay? And I oversaw the, that part of uh, the ministry there. And uh, when I first went on staff, she was the backup sound person. So God automatically put us together. But then after I had trained her, because I gutted the whole sound system, I changed everything and just kind of left her like, what do I do with this, you know? And because there was all this equipment that nobody knew how to use at the church. And I'm like, this is silly. So I put it all into use and left everybody kind of scratching their heads. So she started coming after the, uh, the women's Bible study on Wednesdays. She'd come over and I would teach her the ropes and everything. And then after she learned everything, she still kept coming. And it's like, hmm, that's interesting. And, you know, so she was trying to be where I was. I wanted to be where she was. And we would just sit and, yeah, we'd talk about sound and stuff, but then it would drift into just talking about life and everything. And at a sound booth, a relationship was born. And it's like, oh, God, I, I get it now. Okay, so just like even now, after 30 years, I need to date my wife call her at random times just because I want to hear her voice and let her know I love her. You know, just as I need to do that, I need to do that with you. I need to get up in the morning and get into the Word and say, hi, what do you want to say? What do you want to talk about today? Pray. Walk with Him. Listen to Him. Be where He's at. And that's how we seek the Lord in the word, in prayer, in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ as he speaks through us to each other and ministers to uh, us through each other. So this is God's heart. And I want us to go down. Verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? That's Israel. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. I read that and I was like, God, I feel like that's me so many times. Where I'm, I'm, I'm in love with you, but then poof, it's like the fog, you know, it's gone after a few hours. Say, like, I don't want to be that way. And God says, therefore, I have hewn, you, hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. God's saying, I don't want religion. I don't want the burnt offering. I want you to know me. I want you to be with me and hang out with me. It's like, it's like a marriage where you've got 
one or the other party, maybe both, where they really don't honor each other or pour into each other, but on certain days like anniversaries, Valentine's Day and whatnot, they do something special. And there's nothing wrong with Valentine's Day or anything like that, but I remember talking to some gals back when I was a pastor and they would just be heartbroken because Valentine's Day was the only time that their husband would show any special interest to them. She just wanted to have some attention, you know, on a Tuesday in the middle of, you know, what, November kind of thing. She just, she just wanted some consistent appreciation. But all, all she did was, you know, she hung on that day because that's all she got. And that's what God's saying. It's like, I don't, I don't, want, the, I don't want the sacrifices. I don't want the feast days. I want you. And that blows my mind that God wants us so much and he loves us so much. And he makes it easy for us to come to him. So now let's go over to Isaiah, okay, chapter 9. And we're going to look at how God makes this happen through the first and second coming of Christ, okay? We know this passage. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, judgment is coming upon Syria, Israel, Judah, and all of that. But there's hope, okay? This is particularly to Israel. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought in contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations or of the Gentiles, okay? Now, that might sound familiar to you because when Jesus entered his ministry in the book of Matthew, it says what we're about to see here in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They reject, rejoice before you with joy as at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil for a yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as in the days of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What's going on here? Okay. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, that's the northern part of Israel. Okay. That's one of the areas that was hardest hit by the Assyrians. It was dark. It was awful. And it was where Joppa's up in that area. And it was the only seaport in Israel at the time. And so that was strategic. Battles went on there. People were vying for control of the area. It was unstable. It was harsh. Even to the, the day, you know, till the, I believe it was the 1967 war in Israel. Um, if you go to Israel and you're up in the Golan Heights, what used to happen 
was that northern part of Israel, you've got Syria and Lebanon right on the other side of the Golan Heights. And so you had the Israelis who had their farms down in the lowlands in the valley, and the Syrians and the Lebanese would have their rockets and mortars up on the Golan, and they were lobbing rockets and grenades into the farms of the people, okay? That's why Israel took the Golan, to protect the people, to protect the nation. And it's that first line of defense. So this area has been contested even to this day. I remember standing up on the Golan and you look over and you're looking right into Syria, you're looking right into Lebanon and you've got a, a buffer zone, UN buffer zone right there because it's still a hot spot. And so these are the people, this is that area where when Hezekiah said, hey, anybody want to come down and worship the Lord with us? These people wanted to. These people had the heart. And these are the people that Jesus went to. This is the area of the north and the Galilee where Jesus went to minister. They had an open heart where the religious in Judea and Jerusalem did not the majority of them. This is the promise of his coming, the first coming. And with all of the political mayhem that's going on, he's the son of God. He's a child born of the virgin. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. All these governments are going to collapse and fall apart. Everything is going to go crazy as we go through Daniel and Ezekiel and we see everything transpire. The one who really calls the shots is Jesus. And that's a great place to be. That's a great hope. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then look at this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Who's doing this? Man? No. Prophets? No. Kings? No. The zeal of God himself is going to do this. There's no stopping him. God will make good on his promise to his people. And then he goes on to uh, talk about the judgment against Assyria and uh, the oppressors of Israel. Go over to chapter 11. And we've just talked about the first coming of Jesus. It kicks us into the second coming of Jesus. Verse 1, chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. I've got a neighbor next door. They top their tree, and I don't know why people do that. I guess it's supposed to be a good thing, but hers didn't come back. And it's been dead for about two years. Well, now at the very base of it, so you've got this thing standing up, you know, this trunk with nothing on it. But out of the stump now, there's, there's a tree growing. And that's the picture here. It looks like everything's dead. It's over. There's no hope. But Jesus is coming, okay? 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is the Holy Spirit upon him. Remember when Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came upon him and empowered him to do the ministry that he was called to do. Jesus was a man just like us. Okay, a human being, just like us. How's that? We're not all men in here. <laughs> but he was just a human being, just a human, just a guy. But he was also God. But he put himself at a place where he was dependent upon the Spirit of God and upon the Father. Don't ask me how that works. But depend upon the Father, just like we have to. He's the one who shows us how to live. The Spirit of God is upon him. Going down to verse 10, in that day, this is the end of, uh, this is, uh, that's the millennial kingdom reign. Um, and uh, it talks about how the earth will be full of the knowledge of God. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, he shall be, the, uh, the nation shall inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant. God is going to bring a remnant out of Babylon, back into Israel, back into Judah. It's going to happen a second time, okay? When the Romans kicked Israel out, okay, during the diaspora in 70 AD, and they were scattered all over the place, Nobody ever thought that Israel would become a nation again. I've got books. One of them in particular was written in 1914, Our Day in the Light of Prophecy. And it reinterprets that Israel becoming a nation again and the temple being rebuilt and all that because no nation's ever been completely taken out and then brought back, okay? But in 1948, Israel became a nation again. Nobody believed it could happen. They maintained their identity, even though they were scattered across the, the globe. They maintained their belief in the Lord to some degree or another. Okay? They maintained a language. And right now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, they're looking at the red heifer trying to, that they've got there in Israel trying to make sure that they can begin to do the sacrifices of cleansing for the priesthood, and they've got everything they need to begin building the temple. And Jesus prophesied that the temple would be um, uh, the temple would be defiled by the Antichrist, right? Well, in order for that to happen, you got to have a temple, and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and now everything is geared up, ready for another temple. So things are moving in this direction. Now, let's go over to chapter 24. All this stuff is basically God's judgment upon Egypt and Cush and Babylon and Assyria and Tyre and Sidon and all of that. So it's judgment against the nations. Chapter 24, this is the great tribulation, okay? And we'll just read the the first few verses here but behold the lord will empty the earth 
and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priests, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. What is that talking about? Basically, it doesn't matter if you're rich and poor, slave free, it doesn't matter who you are. You're not going to escape this. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. That's what was brought on by Adam. And its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. That is heavy duty. God is making it really clear what's coming down the pike. But with that in mind, let's go over to chapter 25. What's the end game here? What's happening? All right. Verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old. Look at these plans are faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigner as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Wow. Okay, gang, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get rough. But here's the end game. I'm coming. I'm coming again. And when it's all said and done, I'm going to wipe away all the tears. There's going to be no more death. Everything is going to be great. Jesus defeated death at the cross. Death and the grave will be cast into the lake of fire after the millennial reign, as Revelation tells us. There's hope here. And I love the way that God does this. I'm going to have to discipline you. You're not repenting, so I've got to do this. But it's because I love you and this is how it's all going to work out. 
And I want us to leave with this, verse 3, chapter 26, 3 through 5. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Jesus said in John 14, uh, 27, he said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not like the world gives, give I to you. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be encouraged. I've overcome the world. Okay? Jesus was telling the disciples about what was getting ready to come down. The destruction of Jerusalem, the diaspora, all of the crazy stuff that was about to happen, and what would happen in the future at his second coming. He said, don't be afraid. My peace I leave with you. Remember, Isaiah said of him that one of his titles is Prince of Peace. Here's the thing. We have a God who loves us in a way that is just unimaginable. If he can love Israel like Hosea loved Gomer, but even perfect, okay? And he says he loves us. And he says he will never leave us or forsake us. There is such comfort in that. And no matter what you're going through or no matter what's happening in this world, keep your eyes on Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. When our minds are focused on Christ, we have peace. He's got it. Remember when the disciples were in the storm twice on the boat, okay? They're freaking out because they're looking where? At the wind and the waves, right? We're going to die. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm telling you to go across just because I'm actually going to lure you out here and give you a sucker punch and kill you in the middle of the lake. Yeah, no, okay? Peter, when he's walking on the waves, as long as he's looking at Jesus, we're golden, we're walking. But then he starts looking at all the stuff going on around him and he starts sinking. And fortunately, Jesus doesn't go, you know what, dude, you don't have enough faith. Sorry, see ya. Hey guys, you got room in the boat? No, he doesn't do that, okay? He grabs, he grabs Peter, pulls him up, chucks him back in the boat and he gets him over to the other side, you know? And he is so patient with us. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Seek him. Fall in love with him. As Isaiah says later on, God says through Isaiah, if you seek me, you will find me. If you look for me with all your heart, if you really want me, I'm there. 